Women and Wellbeing is an Adam Center podcast highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Miller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Morala Halacha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kivun Roots Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and the creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing podcast for the month of Tevet. During this Hebrew month of Tevet, we find ourselves coming to the end of Sefer Breshit and the beginning of the Book of Shemot. These chapters of the Torah tell the story of Yaakov's family moving down to Egypt and, most significantly, the birth of the Jewish people. The beginning of Sefer Shemot highlights the miraculous nature of how this family multiplied into a nation when it says, Uvnei Israel paru v'yishratzu v'yirbu v'yatzmu b'ma'od ma'od v'timalei ha'aretz otam. And Bnei Israel were fertile and prolific and they multiplied and increased very greatly so that the land was filled with them. The Midrash takes its cue from the Torah and further embellishes the imagery of birth motherhood, and midwives described in the Torah. These sources highlight what so many women and couples feel about the birth process, even in the modern world. It is truly miraculous. Yet it also requires a certain amount of effort, hishtadlut, and emunah on our part. The Midrash highlights this theme, the birth of the Jewish people, based on the effort and perseverance of the women aided by the hands of God. For some women and families, the topic of childbirth and pregnancy is more complex. Some struggle with fertility issues, others with miscarriage. Then there are those who face post-birth challenges, either relating to the health of the baby or of the mother. These families, too, show perseverance and emunah and often go through challenges that many of us may not even know about. The Torah provides female models of inspiration around birth. First, Moshe's mother and sister, Yocheved and Miriam, models of courage and defiance in the saving of the Jewish babies in Egypt. Another woman takes on a whole new life in the Midrash, Serach Bat Asher, who is known as a gentlewoman who holds the secrets of redemption. She ensures the survival of the nation. We will explore and draw inspiration from a few sources in just a moment. Before we go on, I just want to mention that after these Torah thoughts, we will also hear from a modern-day Yochevet, literally, that is her name, who has played a significant role in helping Orthodox Jewish women and couples in pregnancy and in childbirth. I will be interviewing Yochevet, also known as Chevi, about her personal story of having a baby with Tay-Sachs disease and how she raised awareness among rabbis and communities about genetic testing. Her story is a piece of history. Returning to our Torah sources, Breshit chapter 46 teaches that the number of Yaakov's family who went down to Mitzrayim was 70, including Yosef and his two sons. This creates a problem for biblical interpreters since that only adds up to the number 69. Who is the mysterious family member who is not mentioned, but who completes the count of 70 souls who went down to Egypt. Rashi cites the Midrashic tradition that the 70th soul was Yochevet, the mother of Moshe, who was born on the way down to Egypt. And while another Midrash posits that it was actually the mysterious Serach Badasher who completed the count. 
Either way, we are presented with two female role models who are referred to as completing the count of Israel and who planted the seeds for B'nai Israel's redemption from Egypt. What unique role did they play to have drawn the attention of the Midrash and biblical interpreters in this way? Yochevet defies Paro in Sefer Shemot by giving birth to a baby boy and having faith in God, despite the hardships of her generation. She is also identified in the Midrash as Shifra, one of the two midwives who refused to obey Paro's decree to kill boys born to Israelite women. The Midrash explains the etymology of her name as relating to Meshaperet, as she would improve and care for the newborns. Moreover, she is part of the generation who miraculously reproduced in incredible numbers, Sheparu. According to this Midrashic depiction, Yocheved is both mother and midwife, a model of hope in the midst of oppression and perseverance for the future. The second Midrashic tradition on the 70 souls is that it was the wise woman, Sarah Barasher, who completed the count. Sarah is listed as having gone down to Egypt as well as amongst those counted in the census on the plains of Moab in Bamidbar, chapter 46. This would mean she lived a very long time. The Midrash attributes her unusually long life to the exceptional role she played in the story of Yitziat Mitraim. Sarah is the holder of the secrets of redemption. When the leaders of B'nai Israel are unsure whether or not they can trust Moshe as their leader, they consult Sarah, who verifies Moshe's authenticity. Again, before B'nai Israel can leave Egypt, Moshe needs to find Yosef's coffin and take him out with B'nai Israel. It is Sarah who reveals to Moshe the location of Yosef's coffin. Both Yochevet and Sarah represent women who were physically in Egypt, but whose spirit and emunah transcended Egypt. According to the Midrash, they were both born before entry into Egypt, and they both came out because they were strong in their faith and their faith and wisdom were an integral part of Yitziat Mitraim in general. Their stories surely reflect the stories of many of the anonymous righteous women who persevered in Egypt and went ahead and continued to have children in the face of difficult times and struggles. Hence, the Midrash describes them as completing the count. These women could see beyond their time and personal challenges and demonstrate perseverance in ensuring the health and survival of babies born in Egypt and the future of the Jewish nation. Another model of inspiration is Yochevet Rader, our guest on the podcast today. Preparing for this interview with Yochevet took me back to my years at Stern College, where I was greatly encouraged to do genetic testing before marriage, in particular for Tay-Sachs. By the time I got married, it was pretty much agreed by many halachic authorities that it was not only permitted to do genetic testing, but possibly a moral obligation. But this was not always the case. Yocheved and her family are a significant part of the story and of the history of how the views of genetic testing for Tay-Sachs changed in the Orthodox world. I think it is important to learn from her story about how to raise awareness on health issues with halachic authorities. At the same time, Yochavit's story highlights the importance of providing support to couples going through all sorts of fertility and birth challenges, be it infertility, miscarriage, abortion, postpartum depression, or other things. In the spirit of the inspiring women at the end of Sefer Reshit into the beginning of Shemot, Yochavit, Miriam, and Sarah Barasher, join me as we listen to Yochavit Schrader's story and 
and how she shares her incredible strength with us. Yocheva Trader made Aliyah in 1986 with her husband and two young children. She was one of the first trained doulas in Israel and provided labor support for hundreds of women. She was involved in many aspects of childbirth as a doula and breastfeeding counselor. About 20 years ago, Chavi retrained as a family therapist. For the past 15 years, she has been working as a therapist for women and couples with an emphasis on maternal health, anxiety, depression, loss, trauma. She is trained as a SEP, Somatic Experiencing Provider, in working with trauma. Chavi works closely with Mahon Pua, providing support and therapy for women struggling with fertility issues, and volunteers on the Mahon Pua hotline. She works at the Amuna Counseling Center in Modi'in and maintains a private practice in Hashmonaim and on Zoom, thanks to COVID. Yochavit also has taught for the Eden Center Kala Teacher Training Program and Balaniot course. She says her greatest accomplishments are her five wonderful, productive, amazing children and 18 adorable grandchildren, Bli Ayin Hara, Ken Yerbu. Hi, Yochavit. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Eden Center Women and Wellbeing podcast. Thanks so much, Karen, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yochavit, take us back in time to when you got married and started having children. There was very little awareness about genetic diseases, let alone testing for them. You and your husband went through some incredibly challenging times and experiences. Would you please share some of your story with our listeners? Okay. So uh, I was married in 1980, very young. And at that time, there was a bit of awareness about testing, genetic testing, mostly for Tay-Sachs disease. Um, I was brought up um, Orthodox from birth, and in our 12th grade class about families, um, I remember clearly my teacher saying something about, no, we don't do that, we don't test, we just have to have a non mitachon and Hashem that things will work out. My husband at the time was um, in optometry school, but he had um, gone to YU, and he was told at the time by his biology teacher that testing was not advisable. So we just forewent for the testing. We didn't go for testing. It just was not an issue. Um, I got pregnant pretty soon after our wedding and our first child was born about a year after we got married. His name was Evie. He was a beautiful baby. Um, he developed very nicely until he was about six months old. At that time, he was sitting up. He was scooting around in this little um, scooter chair we had with wheels. He would clap his hands. We played hide and seek. He held his bottle. He was eating nicely. Um, and then he kind of plateaued for a while where he stayed about that at that level of development for a few months. And then we started to see some regression where he stopped rolling over. He would sit, we would sit him down and he would fall over. He wasn't pulling himself up to stand in his crib. And I started voicing my concerns 
to our local pediatrician in America at the time. He went every month for well baby checks. Sure. And um, the pediatrician just voiced, just chalked it up to young mother and experience, different um, babies develop differently. Wow. At a certain point, I brought my husband along um, for a checkup. And at that point, the pediatrician took our concerns a little more seriously, sent us to a neurologist for further testing. And we ended up at LIJ for testing. Um, at the time, I was nine months into my second pregnancy. Um, we got the news that was delivered very in a very brusque, unprofessional way that our son had Tay-Sachs disease. Mm. Um, at the time, being nine months pregnant, we didn't know what was going to be with our second child. It was too late in the game for an amnio. And when he was born, um, two weeks later, we waited the day while um, his cord blood was tested, and Baruch Hashem got the news that he was okay. That's my second son, Yohanna. Wow. Um, so then I had two babies, um, one of whom was, thank God, developing beautifully, and one of whom was regressing. And we cared for Zevi at home until he died at the age of three and a half on Tubishvat. Um, that was the story of Zevi's life. We watched him slowly, slowly disappear. Um, of course, now that we knew that we were Tay-Sex carriers, having found out the hard way, we were faced with the dilemma of what to do in the future. Um, we started talking to people, doing our research, trying to figure out what our options were. And the first thing that we were told was, um, don't ask Rav Moshe Feinstein. Whatever you do, don't ask Rav Moshe Feinstein. It was well known that he had a PSAC um, where he did not allow uh, abortions for hmm. sex pregnancies. Hmm. So. We were living in Queens at the time. We did not ask for Moshe. We, um, we got further information that there was a Rav in Israel who gave a heter for abortion. Um, so about two months after Yohanan was born, we were, found ourselves in Israel for my sister-in-law's wedding. And we were able to connect with, first, actually, first we went to, to visit my husband's Rebbe, Ravaran Lichtenstein. Mm -hmm. And we sat with Ravaran and with his wife, Tova. And Ravaran basically at the time said, um, I'm not sure what to tell you. Mm -hmm. He was a, a, an incredible Torah giant, but he did not have an answer for us. We asked him if he would be comfortable with us going to see um, the Tzitzeliezer of Waldenburg, and he said, yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. So we were able to find someone who connected us with Rev Waldenburg, and off we went. We, I remember 
going through those winding alleyways in Shari Chesed to the home of this Torah giant. Um, and who was also, I had first, also an expert in halacha and medicine. And so we right. Were, uh, he was the rab of Shari Tzedek Hospital. Yes. That's right. And he wrote, he wrote many volumes that are called the Tzitzeliezer. Yeah. Um, questions that were asked to him, medical ethic questions. Um, when I had first heard that there was a rabbi in Israel who gave a heter for abortion, I had this image in my head of some reform rabbi. <laughs> and I was quite, um, it was quite reassuring to walk into his home and to see this really tall giant um, with a long white beard and sparkling eyes and real hadrat panim. Mm-hmm. who was able to give us a bracha and say, as, as he had written in his tshuva, that abortion was permitted for Tay-Sex um, pregnancies. Wow. At the time, at that time, the only way to test for an infected pregnancy was with an amniocentesis. Um, when we had met with the genetic counselors and experts, they advised us to wait, if possible, that there was a new test being developed, um, which would be available earlier in the pregnancy. Um, we were able to wait, and um, about two years later, I did get pregnant again, and we went for CVS testing, that's chorionic villus sampling, I was the first woman, I think, in the world to have a CVS for pregnancy that I wanted to keep. And um, it was done in an operating room with with everybody masked and gowned. And sadly, that pregnancy was an affected pregnancy, and um, I terminated the pregnancy. A few months later, we tried again, again with... um, unhappy results, and this was while Zevi was still alive. When he, when he passed away, um, we were ready to try again, and fortunately that pregnancy was okay, and that resulted in my daughter, Shoshi. Wow. Um, about a year later, we made Aliyah and um, came to Israel, and I was blessed subsequently with, with three more healthy children. Um, in between, I had two regular old-fashioned miscarriages. Um, so in total, I've been pregnant 10 times, and Baruch Hashem, I now have five healthy children. Um, and many, many grandchildren. Can you book? That's a very shortened, abbreviated version of our um, childbearing history and I think I had mentioned to you when we spoke earlier that we lived in a time when CVS was available to us and that was really the best option. Nowadays um, couples facing genetic incompatibilities can go about many other ways to to create a family um, with PGD and IVF um, so, so things are different, but we lived in that window of time when CVS was, was the way to go. 
Wow. It's, thank you so much for sharing the story. It's, and I know it's only, only the tip of the iceberg of what you went through, uh, but it really, it's, it's, first of all, a little bit of history for people. And even though you, you, you're incredibly young and, and, uh, and vibrant, and it also gives this incredible perspective because I, as I'd mentioned to you, by the time I was in college, it was already a different world, a different attitude toward genetic testing. Um, and the stories about meeting with these great rabbis, that's really, you know, also important to, to have on record, really, really special. How, how did you feel as you went through this time in your life? Uh, did you, did you get any sort of support? Did you connect with other couples who also were carriers of the Tay-Sachs gene? Um, and if you, if you, what sort of support did you get, let's say from your community, from leadership? Okay. So remember that this was in the eighties. This was pre-internet, pre, pre-computers. I mean, home computers anyway. <laughs> um, and our, our main sources of information would work from the doctors, the geneticists that we met with. And, and the, the doctors who took care of our son. Um, so they would give us pamphlets that had, you know, phone numbers to resources like the Tay-Sex organization. And the Tay-Sex organization had this way that um, what they offered people who were struggling with, with children with Tay-Sex was a hotline where you could dial this, well, I think it was about 20-digit number that would connect you to another family who, who had been through or was going through um, dealing with a child with Tay-Sachs. And so there was a family in Toronto that we would speak to occasionally. We also happened to have good friends who we found out were also carrying the Tay-Sachs gene, and we, we became each other's support system, and we're still very close even to this day. Um, and in terms of the community, I, I would say that, that that was kind of lacking. Um, our family was not really able to give us the support that we needed. We, we, we did have good friends who were there for us and really did provide us with a lot of technical help and, and emotional support. Um, in those days, it was not has taken for granted that a couple going through something like this would, would go even for therapy. Um, my husband reminded me that he, um, he had called up a friend of, of, of we have friends who's uh, this, we were so young back then, we didn't even know any psychologists, but we had a friend whose father was a psychologist. And we called him and told him what we were going through. And he says, oh, sounds like you're doing fine. Mm. And, and we didn't go for help, wow. which in hindsight was really not so smart. But totally understandable. Totally understandable. Back I mean, in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine any young couple struggling with that now who wouldn't immediately go for help. That's right. There's so much more awareness today. And yet there's still so many things that people don't talk about so openly and, in, you know, behind closed doors and in their home or not feeling that they're getting the support they need. So something to take from your experience into, into many other things in our, in our lives. Um, so 
after your experience with um, with meeting with some really ex- extremely influ- influential rabbis and post scheme about the issue of Tay-Sachs and genetic testing and abortions. So what was your, what, what did you go into these meetings? What sort of was your intention? What was the reason for meeting with them? And, um, and did you, did you in the end find that, I mean, clearly your meeting with the Eliezer was satisfactory and inspiring, but with some of the others, uh, did the encounter live up to what you had hoped for? And can you suggest strategies to people today interacting with Postgame on issues where we're still um, looking, let's say, for um, a similar sort of understanding and sensitivity where, where medicine or mental health and other issues meet halacha and sometimes have a little bit of an obstacle there? Okay. So as I mentioned to you before, we did a lot of research before we asked our question. Mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we have to start that way. We have to ask ourselves, what is the answer that we want to get? And then find the person who's going to give us that answer. And I know that sounds a little backwards, but if someone has published their their chuva on, on a certain topic and you go ask them, you're going to you're going to, you know what they're going to say. Yeah. So we kind of knew where we were headed and what we wanted to hear. And that's what led us to Rev. Oldenburg. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's an important point, that you have to do your research before you ask a Shiloh, because I feel that once you ask that Shiloh, you are committed. You can't go shopping for, yeah. for the answer that you want to get. Yeah. And we, we had been in touch with families who had, asked that Shiloh to Rav Moshe, and they had Tay-Sachs child after Tay-Sachs child after Tay-Sachs child, and these people were suffering. We were suffering as well, but they were suffering over and over and over. Can't even imagine. And what about, sorry, go on. And I think that part of Rav Moshe's chuba was based on the information that he was fed by his son-in-law, who passed away recently, Rav Tendler, um, who was the Rav Moshe's medical authority. And Rav Tendler was the one who had told my husband not to get tested. Hmm. And I had a meeting with him. It wasn't a meeting that I had set up ahead of time. I met him at a wedding and confronted him. And his answer was not very satisfactory. He said to me, so just adopt Mm. That was his answer. Mm. Um, I don't know why he was influential in somehow changing Rav Moshe's sock, but I know that um, genetic testing, especially for Tay-Sachs down the line, was recommended and not something to, that people stayed away from. We were also influential back then in helping Dory Sharam get started by allowing them to use our story as their cover story and to be like their poster children because we were willing to talk about it. And many other couples facing this challenge um, did not want to go public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I also remember being very frustrated when I called up the principal of the high school that I had gone to and offered to speak to the girls about testing and I was turned down. He didn't he didn't want to raise that topic, and that was very painful. 
but I did speak in other various shivas and, and high schools about testing. Um, and I also spoke at medical schools about how to present parents with, with bad news so that other parents wouldn't have to go through the, the horrific way that we were given the diagnosis. That's right. Wow. And so there's the kind of going to these, um, there's going to speak to the rabbis and sometimes to the medical professionals and asking questions, but there's also importance in having the conversations and, you know, the more presumably what changed things over time was people like you sharing your story and helping, helping understand better the importance of genetic testing and, mm-hmm. and the work of Doria Sharim. So it's really quite amazing. Now, Doria Sharim is controversial because people go and just get a random number and then they go with that number and they don't really know what it's all about. Mm-hmm. I think nowadays many more people are open to the idea of genetic testing where they know what they're facing or the other because technology has changed so much and, and there were so many different options for for having children, people just get married and then deal with the genetic testing afterwards. Yes, yes. We did it while we were dating, which is, I guess, an interesting uh, time to do it because <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. it was recommended. Yeah. So th- things are very different. Things are very different now. That's right. In many, many ways. For sure. Yeah. So today, thanks to you and others, we are in a much better place on the topic of genetic testing for couples. Um, But what challenges do you still see in the realm of genetic testing today? I think today's genetic testing is so much more extensive, whereas once you were testing for Tay-Sachs and many and a few other fatal diseases, now they're testing for many, many things that bring up many other challenges. They're testing for things like the BRCA gene. Or um, testing for other other illnesses that are not necessarily fatal, um, even things like Down syndrome. Um, so, and many syndromes like that, which which face which present parents with with dilemmas that are not so clear cut. That's right, and and that brings up many many challenges. Um, as a therapist, I, I sometimes work with couples, helping them navigate these challenges um, so that they can reach the decision that works best for them and their family. Hmm. Wow. Really quite amazing. Yes, I can, I can imagine that that can get much more complicated. And mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, so our final question, you were really a pioneer in this area who took your own experience with something challenging and difficult and turned it into something that benefited Am Yisrael. Um, talk about taking us from darkness to light as we are on the, it's getting dark in Israel and uh, we're at the last day of Hanukkah. Um, what do you see as the significant challenges for women and couples today in the realm of pregnancy and birth? And what word of strength and wisdom can you offer them? Okay, so like I mentioned just now, I think the new technology that we have that allows us to test for so many things, um, I could compare it to like the way we use the Internet. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we use the Internet 
um, to, to gain knowledge, to enrich our lives, to, to be able to get information. But if we use it the wrong way, it can destroy us. It can just keep us away from people. It can lead us to, to paths of destruction. And I think the same thing is with this new genetic testing that's available. I think couples have to really, really think hard before they, before they go for genetic testing and to ask themselves, what am I going to do with this information? Hmm. You know, if I have this test done and they tell me that my child has this disease, then what am I going to do? Hmm. So that they're not just going for a list of genetic testing blindly and then I think we all carry some gene that's defective, you know, so, <laughs> so yes. it's going more and more things are going to come out and then we have this information and then what do we do this with this information? I think people really have to be a little bit more savvy and selective about how they use genetic testing. Hmm. I think that's very wise, very wise words. Um, I want to... And my final, um, you asked me what I want to leave people with, and I, this, my motto is it's not about what, what falls your way, what challenges come your way, because like, we're all going to be faced with challenges. It's about how you respond to those challenges, what you do with those challenges, how you react, what you make of them. Wow. Amen. You've certainly given me strength and inspiration. And I really want to thank you for taking the time and sharing this very personal story with us. And I wish you uh, lots of goodness and good health and enjoy all of your children and your family. And thank you so um, much. And I believe you'll have helped many people through this podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikvah as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships, enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedencenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is recorded by Karen Miller-Jackson, edited by Micah Shore, and is a product of the Edison Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe. We welcome your feedback by email at podcasts at theedencenter.com.